Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 179, recorded Monday, September 27th, 2021. This is the podcast giving a voice to the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons podcast, high-tech airport line avoidance and business travel is still MIA. Coming to you from the Travel Commons studios in Chicago, Illinois, no travel since the last episode, just a lot of travel planning. I've talked over the past couple of episodes about pushing forward with our first post-lockdown international trip, a bike tour through the boot heel of Italy. We booked the trip in spring, and then last month, I talked about this in the last episode, we booked our hotels pre and post the ride, and also the flight over. But not the flight back, because, well, what else do we want to do while we're there? I've I've actually just wrapped up an interim CIO gig last week, so there's no huge rush to get back. It's been about five years since our last time in Italy, so... Where do we want to go? As we were thinking about this, a friend, a former colleague pinged me. Hey there, just saw your tweet about your upcoming international trip, sitting here waiting for our pierogies. He now lives in southern Poland. He was actually the guy I visited when we went to Krakow. What are you doing, he asks. Well, turns out that he and his wife are going to be in Syracuse, Sicily next month in October. So what do we do next? Well, there's our answer. After our bike tour ends in Lecce, we catch a flight to Catania and then hang out on the beach for the next week. And I can't remember the last time I said this, but hey, thanks, Twitter. So next step, fire up Google Flights and look for one-way flights from whatever airport is near Lecce to Catania in Sicily. Well, that airport turns out to be Brindisi Airport in Salento, about 24 miles. It's a 8-euro, 30-minute train ride from Lecce, so pretty convenient. Except that the best flight to Catania is some Air Dolomiti Lufthansa mashup with a 13-hour layover in Munich. Yeah, no. So next, I look at Bari, where we're actually flying into. That's 90 miles away, less convenient, but still doable. But the flight options are not much better. A 6 a.m. Ryanair flight, Ryanair, which I kind of think of as Spirit Airlines just without the charm. A 5 p.m. flight with Volotea, whom I've never heard of, but Google and Wikipedia say they're a budget airline based in Barcelona. And then those insane Air Dolomite Lufthansa connections through Munich. This, I mean, this makes no sense. What gives? Well, a little more Googling tells me the rest of the story. Alitalia has been winding through bankruptcy since 2017, and now, four years later, after 75 years as Italy's national carrier, it's finally closing down. The day before I'm trying to book our flight to Sicily. Timing, it's a beautiful thing. A little more Googling says there's a new Italian carrier coming, ITA, but it's still working through negotiating for Alitalia's landing slots and equipment and labor contracts, so it's not taking bookings quite yet. Okay, then. Getting out of Lecce is starting to pick up a little bit of a, I don't know, like an escape room vibe. It's a seven-hour drive, a 14-hour train, so if we're going, we're flying. So I booked the most basic seats on the Volatea flight, which is €17 for 
two seats, just to have something in my pocket and to let the whole Alitalia ITA thing play out a little bit more. I mean, I can always add the luggage fees and reserved seats later with Volatea if, if need be. So I book it on Wednesday, September 1st, 5 p.m. flight out of Bari. It gives us time to have breakfast, pack, and train up to the airport with enough time to deal with the craziness of a budget airline, which is key. My last budget airline experience was flying Wow Air. How about that? I love that name, Wow. I'm so hoping that they are successful in coming back just so I can talk about Wow Air a little bit more. So anyhow... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry for that sidetrack, but my last budget airline experience was flying Wow Air from Reykjavik to London. I arrived two hours before check-in to see what appeared to be a stationary check-in line of a couple of hundred people. That image is seared in my head, and so that's what was worrying me. Now, three days later, after booking this Volatea flight, three days later on Saturday, I wake up to an email from Volatea saying, We regret to inform you that given the current context of uncertainty about the evolution of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have been forced to reschedule your flight. I don't know, gun to head, who knows, to 1230. So four and a half hours earlier than our, than the original booking. I look at the train schedule. Well, there goes the leisurely breakfast and a bit of that budget airline safety margin. But, you know, it still feels doable. The next Saturday, the 11th, I wake up to yet another Volatea email. You'd think these guys would knock off early on Friday. Same wind-up, given the context of uncertainty about the evolution of the COVID-19 pandemic, but worst punchline. We have been forced to cancel your flight. Again, gun to head? Who knows? So I guess that door out of the Leche escape room was a dead end. So I fire up Google Flights again and now see Alitalia flights out of Brindisi. Seems that the replacement ITA has figured out how to take bookings, but following the link from Google Flights takes me to the Alitalia website with a banner still saying that they're shutting down. Another escape room fake exit? Well, I flip over now to Amex Travel. I can book the flight there, no direct flight. So I take the afternoon flight with a two-hour connection in Rome. I put it on my Amex Platinum card. I figure I'll need all the status I can get if I have to file for a refund. And then this week, I read about Alitalia telling passengers to bring just a single piece of hand luggage because of strikes and growing labor protests. My friend sends me a text. You still tracking for Italy? Uh, kinda, I replied. Following up, Jim McDonough stopped by the Travel Commons Facebook page to leave a comment on the post that was pointing to my list of the best bars and restaurants I visited in 2021 so far. In that post, I said that I think it'll take guidebooks a while to catch up with all the closures caused by the COVID lockdowns. Jim agreed, saying, I heard Rick Steves talking about this topic. All of his guidebooks are out of date. It'll take him all of 2022 to get them repaired, assuming Delta, etc. don't clobber 2022. God, I hope it doesn't happen either. Uh, The clobbering, not the updating of the guidebooks. Now, as I predicted in the last episode, Southwest Airlines extended their in-flight alcohol bans to January 18th, 2022, 
That kept them aligned with the new expiration date for the federal in-flight mask mandate. Now, American also extended their economy class ban, but continue to serve alcohol in first and business class. Now, that alignment offers American and Southwest a good explanation for the ban right now. But it's going to make it tougher to reinstate in-flight drink service because, honestly, I just don't see the feds ending the in-flight mask mandate anytime in the near future. Although, I don't know, maybe as the U.S.'s only prohibition airline, Southwest is looking to reposition their want to get away slogan to want to get away from drunk mask fights on Spirit United. Now, back in the spring, I talked about Irene and Claire missing their global entry pre-check expiration notices. And then in June, I talked about a fake email phishing campaign that was targeted at really benched frequent flyers. It said, you know, make sure your pre-check doesn't expire. So last week, when I got an email starting, your trusted traveler membership will be expiring soon, I was a little wary. Now, I was kind of expecting it. After Irene and Claire missed their renewals, I logged in and saw that mine expires in December of this year. So here we are, September, you know, winding up to uh, to December. So it kind of made sense. But still, I examined the entire email, you know, unpacked message headers, mail server authentications. It looked legit, but even then, I typed the web address ttp.dhs.gov into the browser rather than clicking through the link in the email. It was legit, so I buckled in. I selected Global Entry, which I always recommend since for only $15 more, you get both PreCheck and the fast path through U.S. Uh, passport control. And then I cranked through the application. It wasn't bad. Um, a lot of it was pre-populated from my current profile. The only part that required any real thinking was the five-year look back on international travel. Now, I had my passport in front of me, but if you've country hopped within the EU's Schengen zone, you only get stamped going in and out of the zone, but not when you're crossing country borders within the Schengen zone. Now, in what can only be described as a sad commentary on my traveling style, one of the things that helped me fill in those blanks was a spreadsheet of my downloaded untapped beer check-ins. I opened it up in Excel, filtered out check-ins before 2016, and I filtered out uh, check-ins for venues in the U.S. and Mexico. Turns out I haven't been to Canada in the last five years. And then I wrote down all the countries that were left. It was very easy, and I have to say it's an incentive for me going forward to always have at least one beer in each country I visit, like I needed any more encouragement. Now, after I paid the $100 fee and was dropped back to the first page, I saw two interesting notes. The first, across the top, said, Please remember to revisit our website for your application status updates. Notification of when you may schedule an interview appointment, if one is needed, will only be posted here. So, I guess don't trust any emails from these guys, who, or purport to be these guys, offering to schedule interviews. Now, the second note was a little bit more interesting. Due to a significant increase in application volume, we are extending the grace period from 18 months to 24 months for any submitted renewal application. This means you will continue to receive full benefits for 24 months while U.S. Customs and Border Protection is finalizing your renewal application, which is interesting because the email that I got from them said the grace period was six months to a year 
I don't know, whichever one it is, my guess is that I'm not getting any interviews scheduled anytime soon. Now, I've also gotten a bunch of discount offers recently for a annual or a year's clear membership, $100 off from United, full statement credit from Amex. I'm, I'm not sure what the sudden push is, but I have to tell you that I'm holding out. I enrolled in Clear's first iteration back in April 2008, 13 years ago. I talked about it in episode 64, but not before I slandered the Dutch by saying their language sounded a bit like a competitive throat clearing exercise. A couple of months later, after that, I wrote a blog post about my experiences using Clear. I said it was okay, but I couldn't see much value over what was, to me, free premium status lines. And today, I'm still not sold on Clear's value over pre-check. But what really keeps me from picking up one of those free membership offers is that the first iteration of Clear abruptly closed down the year after I signed up and had to be sued to stop it from selling its customers' biometric data, fingerprints, iris scans, before it went bankrupt. The current iteration of Clear says, we never sell or rent personal information about you, but I don't know. They reserve the right to update their privacy policy periodically. What keeps them from updating that will never sell sentence when the money gets tight? And hey, if you have any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. You can always send a Twitter message to M. Peacock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page like Jim McDonough, or the Instagram account at Travel Commons, or... You can always post them on the website at travelcommons.com. The first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is high-tech airport line avoidance. So frequent flyers are an obsessive lot. They, we, obsess over things like packing efficiency, sort of utilizing every cubic inch of our carry-ons, and gaming frequent flyer programs. But top of the list has to be avoiding airport lines. For years after 9-11, line avoidance was more of an art uh, or luck than a science, but a well-practiced one. Through trial and error, you'd get a sense of which lines would be shorter during Monday morning rush hour in O'Hare, or maybe from a luck standpoint, some good-hearted airport worker would shout out, there's no line at checkpoint D, and then jump out of the way of a stampede of rollerboards. And then a couple of years later, we jumped at the chance to give iris scans to clear or allow the TSA to do background checks in exchange for a shorter line, brushing off any questions about the trade-off of privacy for convenience. But what about the airports? What are they doing to help us out? So to dig into this side, I talked to Cody Shulman, Managing Director Americas at Zovis Technology, about how they help airports track and report on the airport lines we're all trying to avoid. So, Cody, a number of big U.S. hubs have installed Zovis technology, DFW, Minneapolis, St. Paul, San Francisco, uh, Atlanta. How does your guys' technology help travelers in these busy airports? Let's, let's take DFW, for example. Let's first take the back end efficiency. We're kind of behind the scenes. That's where 
DFW's terminal operations and their customer experience teams are working together to use the system. They'll make key staffing changes where passenger traffic is the busiest in the, in the moment. And at the same time, they've taken the approach to give access to the local TSA leadership. So there's no longer a disagreement when there is an issue, problem solved rather than just finger pointing of, you know, it was bad. There was a line. There was a queue over here. No, there wasn't because we've, we've visualized it all for them. It's, it's, it's fact. <laughs> <laughs> then, then on the public side, the passenger facing side, you have all the same information at your fingertips that the airport has. So before arrival, you can use the DFW airport app to see all 15 checkpoints and their current wait times by queue down to the two minute interval. Cody, I've I've noticed that in more and more airports, you go to the airport website. Sometimes those websites aren't great. They're not optimized for mobile, which you'd think would be a use case. And sometimes they're not well publicized. But if you drill in and you find them, you actually can find those sorts of wait time stats. And, and those are critical. So at DFW, is that your guys' uh, technology that's sort of driving those stats? Yes, exactly. And I think you're also spot on in saying that, you know, they're either underpublished or underutilized. DFW, before they instituted and implemented that into their app, had pretty low utilization. In the world of flight aware, flight tracker, people have these agnostic airport apps that can do everything with tracking of, of your departure and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But then when they added this, and that's really useful for, for DFW because you can use any single checkpoint among those 15 and reach your gate. And right. on top of it, when the situation, even if it's somehow dramatically changed when you got there, the signage right in front of you at the airport still shows for every terminal where there are three checkpoints, the wait time at the adjacent terminals and the walk time. So you can self-calculate and, and load balance yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've seen that more and more lately, and that seems to be like a, a good add-on. Totally. There's, there's a trust element even to it as well, right? So when, when this first started to launch with the airport, you know, they were doing it in, in very vague statements under 15 minutes, over 15 minutes. Yeah. Then they went to between five and 10, 10 and 15. And gradually they trusted the accuracy of the system down to, to two minutes. Any more than that, they decided would just be kind of wonky for the customer. I remember when they first put up those signs, I, I can still remember the woman, she, she came up to me in front of the, the television screen and said, excuse me, do you work at the airport? I kind of shrug my shoulder and go, I can probably answer your question. Yeah. Rather, you know, why not? So she goes, that thing up there, you know, is it right? Do you trust it? And in my head, I'm going, Oh, you've asked the wrong guy. Like I could, <laughs> I could go on for minutes and minutes. Here. How do I say no to that? But <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Cody, what makes it accurate? That makes you confident that you've got something down to a two-minute interval. So the system works with two key components. We have software, which is you know dashboards that are are live visualizations and historical ones for for users, and we have hardware. We have sensors. Those sensors are designed for airports. They're made by Zovis ourselves, and they're optimized around queuing and queuing in a complex environment like security or especially check-in, which is super unstructured. We're measuring a very specific thing, and that's people, and it's their height. You end up under under a Zovis sensor. It's not a camera. It's a sensor, and and we're taking a measurement of your head height and your shoulder height. And the difference between those two, we're sure that it's you, you as in a human. Not that, not Mark, not mm-hmm. anything else that's personally identifying, but that that's you. And then, so that's that's step one, right? That's a person. But there are lots of people around in, in, a, in a queue. We want to make sure that we capture people exhibiting what we call queue-like behavior, right? So that's moving in a sequence close enough to other people, understanding some people travel in groups and then their independence. And, and, and we balance that out algorithmically so that we know that, that it's a person and they're in the queue. How do you guys manage, you know, kind of traveler privacy? It's a super relevant and, and, a, and a, honestly, for me, a pretty easy question. We're not detecting faces 
nor are we detecting heat or mobile devices or, or anything else sort of personally invasive or inconsistently available across every person. It's just those heights. And again, that, that height differential. So when we transmit data off our devices, our sensors, we're not transferring images. It's just coordinates. It's X and Ys. There's nothing personally identifiable. Cody, looking out, what's in the development around adding more convenience, helping future travelers? If we look out two, three, five years, what's next on the horizon for travelers? To me, the the most noteworthy thing for the passenger side is a connected and a a predictive experience. Take Seattle. So Zovis is is present in all the, the checkpoints in Seattle, and we've taken it a step further and integrated with Delta in the Fly Delta app there. So There's a feed to the user to know what wait time to expect in the app when you're a departing passenger from Seattle. That's cool. Awesome. Let's take that one step further. And for that particularly elite or frequent flyer from there, they're in their office. It's a weekday afternoon. They have to catch an evening flight. What if all the things talked to each other and said, hey, this is the time you should probably leave. Okay, you've set up auto enable, uh, you know, your lift to come at this time. It's going to drop you at the security checkpoint that in this moment we know is the best one because you again can reach your gate from any of the five. Then you're through security, awesome. You have time for that extra beer, which not only do you want, but the airport wants you to have because that's where (laughs) their real money is. Exactly. (laughs) You have your beers, you're happy, you're relaxed. They're getting revenue. So happy, relaxed people spend more. And then you're, you're, no, wait, I have to grab, you know, I had a beer, but I have to grab a water before my flight. So, you know, you walk over to Hudson News and and there's, there's a line. Again, you don't know that there's another Hudson News which there probably is three, <laughs> three, three doors over. Um, maybe that doesn't have a line, which which is better for your wait time. Or in COVID times, maybe a more comfortable experience. It's not as crowded. Or a restroom. You get off a plane. You want to know how crowded it is when it was last cleaned. And then flip it to the to the operational side. Stop cleaning in a circle. Clean when that wide body plane came in with four hundred people who all went to the first restroom, and that thing's trashed now. <laughs> I've seen that. I've experienced that before. <laughs> really just having a, a smart airport experience. And, and even in public U.S. airports, which are trapped for cash, and there's there's a changing tide. And I expect to see that coming forward and, and, and making a, a customer a better experience for, for everybody. Fantastic. Cody Shulman, Managing Director of America's Observus Technology. Cody, again, uh, thanks for taking the time with us. Mark, thank you. It's been a pleasure. second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is business travel is still MIA. Listening to airline and hotel CEOs let the air out of their revenue forecasts for the end of the year, I went back to the TSA's website that gives the daily numbers of passengers going through airport security checkpoints. Now, back in the June episode, the first time I had fun with those numbers, checkpoint volumes had passed 2 million for the first time since the lockdowns. And the numbers were going up. Now, looking at seven-day moving averages just to smooth things out a bit, those numbers grew through June until they hit 2 million. uh, The moving average hit 2 million the first week of July. And then they stayed that way for about a month till the first week in August when that moving average then turned, dropping back down below 2 million. And now it's running in the 1.7 million range, about 20% down from its peak. Now, over the same period in 2019, the peak number was 2.6 million and it never dropped below 2 million. That kind of makes sense. This summer's peak was driven by leisure travel, people, families getting out of the house, going to see places, going to see other people, going to see other parts of their families. But as that travel faded, as it always does when kids go back to school, 
Well, this year, there isn't enough business travel to replace it. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I just finished up a six-month interim CIO gig, and it's honestly been the least amount of business travel of any job that I've had by a long shot. Now, regular listeners to the Travel Commons podcast will recall that there have been times where I've traveled every week for three to four months straight. And there's been a year or two when maybe there were six weeks in those years that I didn't travel. So this last gig, where I only had one business trip down to Miami in May, was a huge change to my standard operating procedures. Now, I talked in past episodes about this, skeptical of predictions like Bill Gates that 50% of business travel will go away. I was going through the Travel Commons archives, cleaning up show notes and the like, and I found an episode from December 2008 where I was answering listener questions about why I travel for in-person meetings instead of video conferencing, when tech analysts were saying that video conferencing is on the brink of widespread adoption. So I'm nothing if I'm not consistent. Now, of course, it's difficult to do in-person meetings when people are still working from home. I mean, it would be a bit awkward doing a sales call around someone's kitchen table, having to project the PowerPoint deck on their white tile backsplash. You know, I got to think you'd lose a couple of bullet points in the grout lines. But by fits and starts, and it's honestly, we all know it's been slowed by the Delta variant, people are heading back into offices and international travel barriers are dropping. At this CIO gig, one colleague, the global head of operations, he lives in the UK, and so he couldn't fly into the US to meet with his staff at some newly acquired plants. Now, he was doing daily video calls, but after a couple of months, he'd made all the progress that he could via video and just needed to physically meet with these people. So when Canada dropped their travel ban, he flew from London to Toronto holed up in a hotel room, worked through Canada's 14-day quarantine, then drove across the U.S. border at Buffalo to catch a domestic flight to Chicago. It's just one data point, but I'm grabbing onto it and holding tight, hoping to be able to tell Bill Gates, look, I told you so. Okay, that's it. That's the End of Travel Commons podcast number 179. I hope you all enjoyed the show. I hope you decide to stay subscribed. You can always find us and listen to us on the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Amazon Music. You can ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. Check out the show notes on travelcommons.com for transcript and links. You can also click on the link in the episode description in your podcast podcast app. And hey, if you've got a couple of minutes, how about leaving us a review on one of those sites? Or better yet, tell somebody about Travel Commons. Word of mouth, it's really the only way that you get to grow a podcast anymore. And if you're not subscribed, hit the website at travelcommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of each page, a set of subscribe links at the bottom, and a big red subscribe button in the middle of the home page. And across the bottom of each page on the website, you'll find links to the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Instagram account, and I promise you some pics from next month's bike trip in Italy. 
And as always, if you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Text or audio file to comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com or to M. Peacock on Twitter. Write them on the Travel Commons Facebook page or that Instagram account. Post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's taken time to send in emails, tweets, and post comments. I really do appreciate it. And so and when we talk again, uh, hopefully I will have survived the trip to Italy. But right now, I got to get out and get some bike mileage in. So until we talk again, take care. Thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now. <laughs>